episode. What the person? Yeah. So today we start on the the ring of life to finish on the human condition, and in the chapter on human condition, it focuses on the endless rounds of samsara, how we go on and on, round and round and round, uh, through birth and death, birth and death. <coughs> it also highlights the, the very reasons for our afflictions to arise, our conflicts, um, how suffering arises in other ways. Yeah. And then, in the midst of that, <coughs> it also highlights as a result how we can put an end to of suffering. Uh, it doesn't go into the specifics yet, yeah, on the specific steps to the end, but it highlights the distinction between those who are enlightened, how they would respond differently, yeah, how they would respond differently. So the next chapter, the bringer of life, <coughs> introduction. The picture of the human condition that emerges from the Nikayas, as sketched in the preceding chapter, is the background against which the manifestation of the Buddha in the world <coughs> acquires a heightened and different significance. Unless we view the Buddha against this multidimensional background extending from the most personal and individual exigencies of the present to the vast impersonal rhythms of cosmic time. Any interpretation we may arrive at, at about this role is bound to be incomplete. Far from the capturing far from capturing the viewpoint of the Kampalas of the Nikayas, our interpretation will be influenced as much by our own <coughs> presuppositions as by theirs, perhaps even more so. Depending on our biases and predispositions, we may choose to regard the Buddha as a liberal ethical reformer of a degenerate Brahmanism, as a great secular humanist, as a radical empiricist, as an existential psychologist, as the proponent of a sweeping agnosticism, or as the precursor of any other intellectual fashion that meets our fancy. The Buddha who stares back at us from the text will be too much of a reflection of ourselves, too little of an image of the Enlightenment. <coughs> so this is the opening paragraph of the introduction. It does a simple summary um, of the earlier chapter, The Human Condition. It highlights how the first chapter actually forms the background uh, for us to look at the Buddha. Yeah. The bringer of light. Light is wisdom and the Buddha in various uh, texts <coughs> has been uh, described as the bringer of light. Someone who brings light to the endless night of darkness. Yeah. <coughs> so very interestingly here, um, he, he lists down uh, various, various possible roles that people look at the Buddha as. Yeah? Uh, first, as a liberal ethical reformer of a degenerate Brahmanism. Yeah? So, before the Buddha was <coughs> the Buddha, in fact, before he was even born, um, there was already 
Brahmanism. Brahmanism is what we call Hinduism today. Yeah. Hinduism is actually coined in by the British and other colonial powers back in the uh, 18th century, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, <coughs> 18th, 19th century. So, uh, according to uh, Hindu, uh, Hindu, how should I say, um, lecturer at one of the uh, interfaith talk, she mentioned about how the word Hindu is a mispronunciation or misspelling of the word uh, Hindu. Yeah. So there's a word called Hindus, uh, Delhi Hindus River. Yeah. So uh, that word itself, <coughs> um, when was when it was uh, pronounced by the Indians, by the uh, Westerners, uh, the the Indians have a pitch sound all over the place. Yeah. Uh, in many words, there's a pitch sound. Yeah. So uh, you can find this kind of pronunciation. Uh, similarly, in the Middle Eastern uh, culture also. Uh, so, when it is said by this lady, uh, Lady Mangala from KL, yeah, uh, I think it was maybe three, four years back during the Christian meditation seminar, she shared that. So, <coughs> when they sort of, in a way, mispronounced and as a result misspelled it, Hindu became Hindu. Yeah. So that became a common term they used to describe the whole, the people of the whole continent, yeah, the Hindu continent. Now, uh, China had um, contact with India <coughs> way before. Yeah, so the, the earlier term for India, uh, there were many different terms. One was uh, Tianzhu, <coughs> one was uh, Sitian, different, different terms. Yeah. So, so today when we use Hindu, right, it's actually a correct pronunciation. Hindu, yeah, Hindu. Yes. Yeah. Um, after becoming a monk and learning more about the development of Buddhism, I actually have a newfound respect for the Chinese culture <coughs> because in the past I always wonder like, how do how do how did we do the translation? It's like, what? <laughs> what was going on in their mind? What, how, why is it that all the words are mispronounced? You know? uh, but late, as I learned more about the, 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 the earlier names, uh, then I realized that ah, the earlier translators actually uh, considered many things when they did the transliteration. Yeah. Uh, as a side, side note, take for example, <coughs> Uh, St. John's, yeah, St. John's. Mm. The proper term in the Chinese culture is Shen Yue Han. Mm. Yeah, Shen Yue Han. Yeah, so, uh, for the longest time, I'm like, how did John become Yue Han? Yeah, but it's actually because when Chinese came into contact with the Western world, uh, British Empire has not even started. Yeah. And that kind of pronunciation didn't quite exist in its form today. Yeah. So in the earlier days, the Latin world, the Roman world was predominantly Latin. And so a lot of the pronunciation, um, as the Roman soldiers spread throughout the Roman Empire, the Latin language uh, developed and 
mix with the local and became what is known as pigeon lighting. Yeah. And those pigeon lighting, pigeon lighting means <coughs> um, uh, a very specific flavor of, of, of lighting. Yeah. So like for example, in Africa, they have what they call pigeon English. In a way, Singlish is a form of pigeon English, but because it's so unique, we, and we, we can't, can't call it Singlish. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, it'll be known as Singapore Pigeon English. Yeah. Now, for European countries, all those pigeon Latin developed into what we call the romantic languages, <coughs> such as um, French, uh, what is that? Uh, Ital Italian is basically uh, a more later form of Latin in a way. Uh, then you have uh, Spanish, Espanola yeah, uh, basically, yeah, and so on. So you, you, you'll find that a lot of these languages has um, very similar uh, pronunciation and very similar uh, spelling as well, but just slightly different. Very yeah. uh, just slightly different. <coughs> like French from good is bien, then for Italian is bon. Uh, but whereas for English is good, so where did it come from? Uh, so the Anglo-Saxon, the, the British Anglo-Saxon, they have some roots from the, the Northern European languages. Yeah. So that, that is called the Germanic, yeah, from the word German, Germanic uh, languages. Yeah. So like German, they, they also root. So some of, so English is considered a very bastardized language. Yeah, and za. Yeah, very, very mixed. Yeah. Uh, there's a joke about the English language, which is that it has more exceptions than rules. So, so in all languages, there's their rules. How to pronounce, how to write, and the, the way the meaning is derived. But the English language came much later and actually <coughs> absorbed anything that comes its way. Yeah, so it's a very mixed kind of language. Now, so, um, coming, uh, so, so the, the reason why St. John becomes St. Yuehan is because the word John, J-O-H-N, uh, is also written as J-E-A-N in France, so pronounced as Jean, yeah, and then in Northern Europe, it's pronounced as, uh, it's spelled as uh, J-O-H-A-N, and the J is not pronounced as J, J. It's pronounced as Y. Johan. Yeah, so it's Johan. Uh, I happen to know that because in university, one of my roommates in my final, final semester is from Sweden. And so I asked him what is his name, and he said, uh, he was a bit like, how do I put it? <laughs> so he said, uh, it's Johan, but you can pronounce as John also. Yeah, because for the, the English speaking world, usually we just call it John. Yeah, so it's like uh, Scarlett Johansson. The correct pronunciation, Johansson. Yeah. So, um, as we learn more about the, the, the Western culture, uh, you'll find that actually the Chinese got it right. Yeah. The early Chinese got it right. But today, a lot of the transliteration is based on English pronunciation. Yeah. So, like, what, what, just one last thing. Uh, like, Italy, it, the correct uh, or not so much correct or wrong, uh, but the Italian way of writing is Italia. Italia. Yeah. So Chinese used to call it Italia. Yeah, but now, nowadays, 
the, the, the common media pronunciation is Italy. Because it's yeah, Italy. <laughs> Italy. It's not called still called Italy. Yes. Mm. The more traditional one still called Italy, yeah. Mm. Which the, is actually the correct one according to uh, the the Italians. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because they don't have a wife. And now they change it like New Zealand is New Zealand, huh? So it's like Yeah, so it's half so so it is it becomes some of some of it becomes the the uh, hybrid translation. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I think the Taiwanese and the Chinese got a bit different here. Yeah. yeah. Taiwanese got a bit different here. Yeah. Yeah, you see. And Taiwan, Taiwanese are still using the very traditional yeah. one. Yeah, Taiwan still still use the traditional one. Because Italy itself actually is uh, I-T-A-L-A-I. Yeah. Just a bit Italian. Yeah. If you go to Italy itself, uh, a lot of the, if you see the word Italy, is is usually Italian. Uh, so uh, even like Rome, we, in Chinese it's Roma, mm-hmm. but in fact Nicola is Roma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the spelling is Roma. R O M A. Yeah, R O M A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <coughs> um, so this is one part of the background, and uh, we were talking about the Germanic Brahmanism. Uh, so, Brahma, Brahma. So we come back to this and that. Today we call it Hinduism because of the misspelling, mispronunciation. Yeah, but actually, all all forms of Hinduism can be traced back to the early form of what we call Brahmanism. Yeah. Why Brahmanism? Uh, the Indians worship Brahma. Yeah, worship Brahma. So <coughs> Brahma is uh, seen as the creator god. Brahma is Vishnu. Uh, Vishnu, Vishnu, uh, who else? Uh, Krishna and uh, Kali. Elephant god is the three Ganesh. Main, the three Ganesh, uh, three main god today that you find in Hinduism. The three main god. This actually came later. Yeah, this came later. Yeah. In the past, uh, the earlier texts, the four Vedas, only one god is mentioned. Yeah, Brahma. Yeah, he's the he's the creator, and he create everything just by speaking things into uh, existence. Oh, it's very much like the OIP. Very similar. That may be like. Yeah, very very similar. Yeah, very similar. So the the Brahmins uh, uh, form uh, based on the based on what they say is inside the Veda. Veda refers to the text. The word Veda is basically text. And they have four texts, four main texts. Uh, one term that even non-Hindus will be familiar with is Ayurveda. Oh, yes. Ayurveda. Yeah. Ayurveda is uh, we typically say that it is the traditional uh, Indian mm-hmm. Hindu medicine and so on. Yeah, but it's actually a complete uh, uh, school of practice. Yeah, within the Hindu religion. <coughs> so for Hinduism, the four books. They cover a lot of different topics. Yeah. So um, they look at life as a, uh, as something that should be should follow certain rules, uh, certain guidelines and so on. Yeah. But they uh, what you look at if you look at Brahminism and you look at Hinduism today, uh, there's slight variance also. Uh, there's slight variance. Uh, so here it highlights um, 
if you can also regard the Buddha as a liberal ethical reformer of a degenerate communism. <clears throat> um, in what way is it is is the Buddha seen that way? Um, in many suttas, which I believe in this chapter you will see, uh, if not you can you, you can look at that in the later time. The Buddha oftentimes have conversation with the Brahmins. Brahmins are one of the castes, yeah, one of there are four castes, the Brahmins, the warriors, the merchants, and the laborers. Yeah. Uh, I think if, uh, earlier on in this series, I, I, I shared with you also. So, uh, the Brahmins believe that they are pure, they are the most noble one, and so on, simply by birth. Uh, so, sometimes when they come and see the Buddha and talk with him, uh, and assert their claim to clarity, the Buddha would highlight to them uh, through not simply saying, oh, the teaching I, I teach say that you are not. No, he don't simply say that. But he just asks them questions. Matter of fact, that means by reasoning. Yeah, so he asks them, for example, if a Brahmin were to uh, be harmful to others, kill, steal, engage in sexual misconduct, lie, would such a person be considered to be uh, good, would, the, would this person not be uh, censored by the king, caught by the king, punished by the king? Would such a person not be uh, considered vile by the people? Yeah? Would the people not like criticize such a person? The Brahmin said, yes, of course. And the Buddha again asked, what if a warrior, a merchant or laborer do likewise? Would they not likewise be, be considered be evil, be unwholesome, and the Brahmins also said yes. Then after that, <coughs> the Buddha flipped it around and said, what if a Brahmin were to abstain from harmful acts? Yeah? And likewise, a warrior, a merchant, or a laborer, would they not be considered as pure? Then the Brahmin also agreed and said yes. So then <laughs> the Buddha, through this way, very systematic way of reasoning, Without jumping to conclusion, without giving any conclusion, but asking him for, for his opinion. Yeah? And then draws from his reasoning the conclusion that in that case, purity doesn't depend on the, the caste that you are born into. Not by birth is one pure, but, but by one's action. Uh, so this famous verse actually comes from this exchange. Yeah? And in this way, the Buddha, in a way, proves to the Brahmin that their own stand is wrong. Yeah. So, but one thing to highlight, uh, even in such suttas, um, you will find that one key ingredient for the for such a discussion to occur is that the Brahmins are also reasonable people. The reason why I highlight this is, in the past when I read this, um, I just feel like, oh wow, the Buddha is so wise, wow, in this week can disprove it all. But over the years, I've met, I've met Christians <laughs> who also use this approach. Can I Because they're not open-minded, their mind is closed. Their mind is closed, and when you try to reason with them, they just ignore whatever you say and you just say whatever they want to say. Yeah, and they expect you to answer their questions, but when you counter ask, they, they just ignore your questions. Mm -hmm. Or if you even if you get give an answer, they just ignore your answer and they just talk about what they want to talk. Absolutely. Yeah. Now in the Buddha's time, 
there are such people also. But the Buddha, Buddha after talking to such a person, <coughs> after having some exchanges, <coughs> you know what the Buddha calls such a person? The Buddha say, you are like a, an eel, like an, a water snake. Just keep on, like, uh, just keep on snaking here, snaking there. Not, not so much on you, know, but you, you don't hold a stand. You just, I, I catch you on here, you, you run to that side. I catch you here, you run to that side. Uh, Sitting on the fence. Yeah. You, you, you don't establish anything. Yeah. Because once you establish a stand, we can prove or disprove it. But you just keep... <laughs> yeah. So the Buddha did encounter such people also. Uh, but in this case, those suttas where there is a... There's some kind of conclusion is when those individuals, as much as they have a different stand, they are being sincere about that stand. Yeah, they are reasonable people also. And so even then, even though they have a wrong view, I find that, hey, there's something to learn from them also. That when we have an argument or a discussion with others, we should be sincere and be reasonable. And if proven wrong, we should admit that, yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, then, then you can progress. <laughs> And in fact, it is in this way that many of the Brahmins became the Buddha's disciples. Because after, like the Buddha would really go very thoroughly until there's nothing, no doubt, no shred of doubt. Then that's exactly what they would say. Ah, the, the, the Blessed One has, has overturned what is, uh, uh, has set upright what is overturned, has, has removed all doubt has uncovered what is covered and so on. It gives so much advice of Indians. Uh, they cannot just give one example. They must give many examples. <laughs> so sometimes you, if you find that Sifu is very low, so it must give. It's because of readings, all these are then getting. Indians are still even at present day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so by when, the, when here it says degenerate with Brahmanism, it is in this context that the Buddha has highlighted how uh, the Brahmins uh, has degenerated from how it was supposed to be. Yeah. Because the word Brahm, Brahmin means someone who is pure. Yeah, someone who is pure. <coughs> so how about the next one? As a great secular humanist. Uh, is that this term humanist is a, how do I put it, fairly, fairly modern but not so modern as in like in this century. Uh, it came from a few centuries back, but not as early as the Buddha's time. Yeah. But can someone um, say what is the meaning of humanist? Yeah. Does anyone know what is the meaning of humanist? Very okay. human. <laughs> ah. Compassion so, and so the Okay, so humanist close, yeah, it's in that line. Yeah, so the word humanist is actually is a movement. Uh, it's a and it's always a non-religious one. So here it highlights as it's circular, but it's interesting because I've never met any that is religious based. Because the term the, the group humanist is basically a movement that says we are not gonna care about what you believe in, we're not gonna care about your your religion, your sex, your age, your color of the skin, your race, your nationality. We're going to just 
care about the fact that you are a human and care for your welfare. It's yeah. like doctors without borders. In a way, yes. Yeah, in a way. Uh, very much so. Uh, except that the doctors care about the physical well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, which is something very beautiful as well. And in fact, many of the humanists are probably those doctors who have this kind of um, ethos also. Yeah. The 20 rupee doctor. Uh, yeah, the 20 rupee, the one no, that no, I shared no, on Facebook one. recently. Yeah. <coughs> so, humanism. Humanism is a philosophical and ethical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of human beings, individually and collectively, and affirms their ability to improve their lives through the use of reason and ingenuity as opposed to submitting blindly to tradition and authority or sinking into cruelty and brutality. Yeah, so, humanism, let me see, uh, when did it start? Yeah, I got to know about um, <coughs> I got to know about uh, humanism because of IRO. Yeah, so in Singapore there is a humanist society also. So, so, so I think you click on the Wikipedia, probably yeah. that's on history. Yeah, let me see. Yeah. Ah, uh, I, 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 I remember roughly correctly. The term was coined in 1808, so in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, German educational reformer and theologian Fred, Fred, uh, Friedrich. Frederick Knighthammer and gradually adopted into English. Yeah. Ah, Knightheimer had wished to introduce into German education the humane values of ancient Greece and Rome. Mm. Rome? Yeah. Rome humane? Well, they were humane towards Romans. Yeah, I mean, if you have all the. Uh, all, all the fights and everything, and the gladiators and you mean? Oh. It's a fight to the death. Ah, so he, 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 he brings up a very interesting point, uh, which is uh, the question of... Because here it says that humanist movement, uh, the Hamel started off by wanting to bring up the human humane values of uh, ancient Greece and Rome. Now, if you look at ancient Greece, the, the imagery we get is the Senate of... Uh, of a republic, of how they are people of reason, because a lot of the ancient philosophers are from Greece. Yeah? Mm. But whereas if you look at Rome, we always think about the Roman Empire. Yeah? And the next thing you think about is the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, the Roman legions, what they are known for, and then the Colosseum, which is where the gladiator fights are, 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 are conducted. Now, what is interesting about the Romans is the Romans pride themselves as having figure of everything. Yeah. So uh, the it is of great um, benefit to be a Roman citizen. Uh, because if you are a Roman citizen, you are protected by the state, you are taken care of by the state, and uh, in, in that way they have that sense of human hum, humaneness. Uh, but they consider non-Roman citizens as second class citizens. They are not necessarily the most humane person as far as second-class citizens are concerned. Slavery was pretty much their culture. Yeah, it is part of their culture. And for Roman citizens, I think it's more like what we call diplomatic immunity now. Yeah, yeah. Nobody yeah. can touch you. Yes. So, the, uh, if you, but now, having, having sort of like um, highlighted that, 
If we then look closer at uh, ancient Greece, uh, while ancient Greece have, has the Senate and everything, they are not that different from Rome also. They, um, they consider their own citizen as you know, all equal, but they also have slaves. Yeah. A lot of the ancient Greece, uh, uh, the, the ancient Greece of, uh, world of Greece had slaves also. Slavery was pretty much a norm. But in a way, um, when we were translating some of the texts, uh, one, one term came up which got me thinking. Like, Nupu. Nupu. Like, for example, even in our Singapore uh, culture and context, uh, as early as, let's say, my Ahmad's time, uh, or even uh, yeah, probably my Ahmad's time, there's something called Assam. You know, an Assam is not a slave, but an Assam is not like the, not exactly like the meat that we have today also. Yeah, an Assam is a stay-in, uh, lifelong uh, servant. Yeah, so the term Nupu is master and servant. Uh, so while the term servant is not slave, but the servant, if you really compare the rights and the, the, the powers of the, a slave and a servant, not that much difference. Not that much difference. Uh, a servant, Asam last time from what I know, they are, they are not really given uh, a pay, uh, but oftentimes, maybe uh, when they actually return home, then the, the master would give him, give them a certain sum, gratuity uh, for retirement, or if they want to get married, for them to get married or something. I thought yeah. that was from the Su Qi Yes, Su Qi yes. yes. But uh, I think they, they, they can make a choice at a certain age yeah. From what I know yes. they, they take the vows, they can't get married Yeah, when they reach a certain age, they have to decide whether yeah. they want to go this way That means, Zhong Sen Pu Jia Or then they may decide to get married mm-hmm. yeah. I think there are some in Singapore quite sad Most of them all are not married They usually yeah. die very suddenly and quietly yeah. Uh, then counterpart to the Assam is the Atong. <laughs> yeah. Who, who is like the butler. Like the Guanjia. Yeah, Guanjia. Oh. Like the equivalent of the butler in the Western world. Guanjia. Yeah. <laughs> so usually the Guanjia uh, have power, but some of them also don't get married. Right? Yeah. And it's a stain together with the family. And you can see some of this in some of the more authentic movies. Yeah. So, um, perhaps one distinction between slavery and servant is that a servant is still given a certain amount of uh, due respect. Yeah. But again, within the Chinese culture, uh, of course Chinese culture is different from uh, Indian culture, it's different from the ancient Greece or Rome. Yeah. But I, I try to understand maybe from a certain parallel. Uh, today, when we think about slavery, we think about people in chains and then someone weeping, pia, pia. <laughs> but sometimes uh, you got to wonder, um, while even in modern times, in the 20th century, uh, there are such atrocities, such as in the Pol Pot uh, regime, yeah? uh, the Khmer uh, uh, regime. Yeah. So, uh, where where their own citizens are pushed into hard labor and literally some are, are just pushed to the brink where they just die. Uh, I just wonder whether 
uh, in whether in ancient India, uh, Greece or Roman Empire. Uh, if you think about it, if you are one of the person who is a master, right, would it serve you uh, more benefit to push your slave to the death, not feed them anything at all, if you have a choice uh, to do that, or at least to feed them a certain amount, and then to take care of them to a certain amount, yeah, uh, so that they can produce more. Yeah, I'm more inclined to think that if they have a choice, they probably would treat them uh, uh, at least a minimum. Yeah, so there's no reason why you should have someone to just kill <laughs> yeah, if you have a choice. Uh, the only possible possibility is like for the Roman Empire when they invade other other nearby countries and they um, conscript the locals to work under force. Yeah, so initially they will they will have to be just handed that way. Yeah, so perhaps what we think of slavery is this extreme form of that kind of relation mm. yeah, where they are literally kept in chains because they, they don't want to do it at all Oh, you need just deliverance Yeah they just, just want like to, uh, ancient Egyptians used to use they used them to build No, actually historian, historians, right? Uh, historians are, are today uh, the whole idea that the Jews were slave to the Egyptians is a meaning that is found inside the Bible. Yeah. There's no there's no trace of such things have ever happening. <laughs> Historians, archaeologists, they Probably. cannot find the, any such trace. Probably Christian take rubber and rub away. The TV cannot wash. You know you know the whole idea about the the uh, forty years in the desert, right? They escape. Oh, with yeah. Moses. Supposedly that they escape. Um, Moses leading their tribes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've read, I've read a lot of different articles. Because over the past 10 years, there are a lot of different um, uh, articles about this. Yeah. So, a majority of them uh, highlight would, would, would try to, they actually try to find evidence. It's not that they just seek out to disprove it. They try to find evidence. And based on what they know of civilizations, movement of tribes and so on, even for nomadic ones. They say, um, so far, they have not found any evidence of such a massive uh, movement. movement. Those 13 tribes, huh? Yeah, and supposed to be counting in the millions there. So in those days, <coughs> they, they say that in India, in the Buddha's time, uh, some of the numbers that is found in Sutra couldn't have been possible. <laughs> And the reason is because total population in India was maybe about 6,000 or, you know, 60,000. Yeah. So for, for such a huge number to congregate in some of the sutra setting uh, is quite unlikely. Now, similarly, if you then consider if there is even 1 million, 1 million movement within in that era uh, in the desert, they would still have left behind some remnants. Yeah. Footprints. Uh, some broken wear and so on, but they found so so scant any traces that they say it's unlikely that they would have uh, moved in that direction or have even existed in that area at that scale. Yeah. So a lot of the a lot of the things that is found in the Bible uh, that is described, there's no third party uh, collaborator. That means what is said to be happening here. There's no such a uh, uh, record 
in the other third-party sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> different from Buddhist, yeah. past we have heard, right? yeah. past we have heard. <laughs> so Christian is past we have been told. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And one key difference is that uh, the, 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 the descriptions in the suttas, I must also highlight, not everything that is, that is described in Buddhist history uh, can be verified with a third party also. Uh, but in part because Indians were not very good with uh, taking record. Uh, everything is password of mouth. So the, the one key evidence of the Buddha's existence is uh, the Asuka pillar. Ayu Wang. Ayu Wang the Nasir Chu. Very interesting because um, for many new Buddhists, when you when you are told, oh, the Asuka pillar is so important, so then, okay, what is so important about a few pillars? Yeah. Uh, and it's because it's one of the earliest traces of the existence of someone called a Buddha. Yeah. Besides, besides oh, today we as Buddhists, we say, oh, there's a temple now, the Maha Bodhi temple. But that temple came much later. And it was because they discovered the pillar there. Yeah. A few pillars around that site that they are able to say that is the place where the Buddha attained enlightenment. Yeah, because in between there were some empires that basically just ruined everything mm-hmm. uh, and didn't recognize uh, Buddhism as a religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, the pillars, and because the pillars were spread out so far and wide, it was interesting. Uh, no one empire could just wipe out all the pillars. So a lot of the pillars were defaced, cut off, yeah. Uh, but because of the way it's, it's um, structured, right, uh, they were able to link them together and say that these are all identical pillars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from some of those that is not so destroyed, they were able to ascertain that ah, there must have been someone who was giving such teachings before this king. Well, this king referred to this set of teachings to pass down. Then that um, linked with the existing text uh, give them more credibility. Okay. So, sorry, uh, humanist. Mm. So, humanist today uh, is a very uh, predominantly circular uh, movement. Yeah? Um, and in Singapore, there is such a society, the humanist society. Uh, in this humanist society, there are also religious people. Yeah? Mm-hmm. In fact, some of them wanted me to join in. Uh, I had a bit of reservation. Uh, I, had a, I had a bit of reservation. Uh, because the, 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 the first time I encountered then in their presentation they said they highlighted Buddha saying that the Buddha is one of the first humanists you know that, huh? uh, now thinking back maybe I was a bit uh, I was a bit uh, quick to to conclude uh, in a sense that because the Buddha didn't explicitly use the term humanist well given that the term humanist only started in 1806 yeah. But in many ways, the Buddha was a humanist in the sense that he saw a potential and value in, uh, in the, uh, the potential of human. Mm. Yeah. And he focused on helping people to develop their potential. Yeah. But uh, there are aspects of the mental training that cannot be found in humanism. Yeah. So, I uh, have to be careful. Uh, yeah. mm. As a radical empiricist, yeah, empiricist. So the, this empiricist is not uh, 
it's it's linked to the it should be linked to the word empirical. Yeah, that means someone who who base your uh, your stand on something that can be uh, empirically verified. Yeah, and not simply on conjecture on on uh, theory and so on. Yeah. <coughs> uh, modern science modern science is is in this direction. Everything must be verified with physical evidence. Yeah. That means something that can be proven. As an existentialist existential psychologist. <laughs> so it's quite interesting, uh, existential psychologist. Because psych psychologists tend to be seen as non existential, right? <laughs> As the proponent of a sweeping agnostic, agnosticism, agnosticism. Uh, ah, okay. So I was having a bit of a confusion earlier with the pronunciation, and even now, uh, because the rest are all you know humanist and Parisist and so on. Yeah. So if you read the whole section as the proponent, yeah. So proponent, then the, the word agnostic becomes agnosticism. Yeah. So he's a pro proponent of a sweeping agnosticism. So what is agnosticism? <laughs> Today a lot of cheap terms. Uh. Yeah. Again, this term I encountered when I first started reading up on the various religious views and also uh, in the IRO circle. So agnostic, it means uh, do not know. Yeah. So for example, uh, the in most religion. They, they state very firmly that they know that God created the world. Yeah. But in ancient Christian, uh, early Christian history, there are those who come forth and say uh, there, are, there are two groups. There are a lot of groups. Uh, one is the Gnostic and one is the Agnostic. Yeah. So today, agnostic, if someone is Agnostic, it means that he says, well, I do not know enough to agree or disagree. So it sometimes it's a bit of the fan-sitter. <laughs> yeah. uh, but here, when uh, I, I cannot say clearly what uh, Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi means when he says that the Buddha is, uh, can be seen as the proponent of a sweeping agnosticism. Uh, I cannot say clearly what he meant by that. But I would suggest a, a guess that uh, the Buddha don't simply um, state something if he don't know it for sure. Yeah, so there are some areas where it's unclear. He will basically state, but well, if it's not true, then what? If it's true, then what? Instead of just, you know, hold, hold, strong, faith. hold strong faith on either side. Reason. Yeah. Oh. Because for, for, based on definition, mm. people of such nature will question the existence of a supreme power or being. Yeah. So, I mean, from this sentence itself, being a proponent of a sweeping, um, it could be that just Buddha will probably agree then there's no such thing as a supreme or omniscient yeah. being, mm. but rather there's a way to go out of this uh, by reason, by, by, by learning how to carry off all our suffering, understand the cause and everything. Mm. So he actually seeks. To, to lead these people, yeah, I agree with you, there's no probably an omission of school being, mm. but we can still move out of this and probably gain enlightenment through uh, practicing this. Let me take a look. Well, this is just in definition, but I'm using yeah. it to... They are, they are very neutral. They, they, they present the Muslim or 
everybody hamparan it. Just yeah. so clean. So agnostics on religion. Religious zealots are often viewed as ignorant by agnostics because of their blind following of a supreme being which may or may not exist. No? Yeah, so this is the thing. May or may not exist. Yeah. So agnostics will often question the existence of a supreme power because a lot of modern religious beliefs have no basis, basis in modern logic. Therefore, following blindly... Uh, so, sorry, what? Therefore, blindfolding sorry, of popular religions is viewed as an easy, easy way out for people who choose not to think for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, an agnostic is a person who believes that the existence of a greater power, such as a god, cannot be proven or disproved. Therefore, an agnostic values in the complexity of the existence of higher beings. Yeah. So this this part. In a way we can say that the Buddha is a proponent of agnosticism in the sense that uh, he questions the existence of such beings. But yet at the same time, in some texts he very clearly um, highlights that these beings um, do not have that kind of almighty uh, power. Yeah. So, I guess in the Buddha's time, there, there was such a movement already. Because I, as I mentioned earlier, before the Buddha, there was the Brahmins. But as opposed to the Brahmins, there were ascetics, the Samanas, those who lived the home life, stay in the forest and practice all kinds of things. So they usually, those who are ascetics, usually don't agree with the Brahmins. Yeah, they don't subscribe to the, the belief of a creator God. Yeah, so maybe in a way, this is how it should be understood. Mm. Or as the precursor of any other intellectual passion that meets our fancy. <laughs> yeah. The Buddha has been uh, attributed with various, various uh, uh, philosophy and, uh, and school of thoughts. Uh, and perhaps it's because the Buddha did exhibit a very broad spectrum of, of uh, understanding of this world and different ways of looking at things. Yeah, that's why maybe he was so he is popular with intellects. Because yeah. intellects was usually use reason mm. and science to prove anything or any, everything. Yeah. Yeah. It is what basically the Buddha does. So. Yes. So uh, Kevin, can you help to read the next paragraph? Okay. Perhaps in interpreting a body of ancient religious in the future we can never fully avoid inserting ourselves and our own values into the subject we are interpreting. However, though we may never achieve perfect transparency, we can limit the impact of personal bias upon the process of interpretation by giving the words of the text due respect. When we pay this act of image to the nucleus, when we take seriously the old account of, of the background to the Buddha's manifestation of in the world, we will see they ascribe to his mission nothing short of a cosmic scope. 
against the background of a universe with no conceivable bounds in time, a universe within which living beings enveloped in the darkness of ignorance wander along, bound to the suffering of old age, sickness and death. The Buddha, the Buddha arrives at the, as the torch-bearer of humankind. Ukkadaru Bringing the light of wisdom. In the words of text 2, 1, his arising in the world is the manifestation of great vision, of great light, of great radiance. Having discovered for himself the perfect peace of liberation, he kindles for us the light of knowledge, which reveals both the truth that we must see for ourselves and the path of practice that accumulates in this liberating vision. Thank you. So, um, when we go through the whole list of the different possible um, role that the Buddha has played, uh, then uh, the the author Varabha Bhukkubodhi highlights that uh, when we read the ancient religious literature, such as the sutras, uh, we cannot help but um, have our own values brought in. Uh, and if I may add, if you consider the, the Chinese Mahana uh, tradition, some have suggested that uh, influences of Taoism and uh, Confucianism has seeped in as well. Yeah. Uh, in a way, uh, we cannot deny that. Because, for example, in my talks, I would bring in parallels of Laksa. I will bring in parallels of uh, the computing world, yeah, uh, because that's what I understand. Yeah. And I would try to bring in examples that I think would help people today understand as well. But by doing so, uh, can we say that it is perfect transparency, where it is basically a, a direct conveyance of what the Buddha was trying to say? Yeah, uh, this is a question mark. Uh. So there's this possible bias there. And then he highlights that we can limit the impact of personal bias upon the process of interpretation by giving the words of the text due respect. Yeah. When we pay homage, pay this act of homage to the Nikayas, when we take seriously their own account of the background to the Buddha's manifestation in the world, we will see that they ascribe to his mission nothing short of a cosmic scope. So, emphasis, uh, emphasis on um, uh, giving the words of the text due respect. Uh, many, many uh, others I've met, uh, they have mentioned about the need, the importance of understanding the background yeah, um, of the usage of certain terms or the culture even. Yeah. What was the basis? Uh, of, of the Buddha's saying certain words. Like, um, there's this sutta about Kisa Gotami, who is who lost her son, and the Buddha told her to go and get mustard seed. Yeah. So, a few years ago, one of the Western monks, Varipa Tamika, uh, he's a very prolific writer. He writes a lot. And one of the books that he wrote, uh, Botany in Ancient India, yeah, 
So he, write, he wrote this book about all the different trees and plants that were described in the Buddha's time, uh, in the sutras. Very interesting is that, why on earth? When he first told me that he's, he's starting to write this book, I was like, uh, <laughs> but one thing that came out, uh, I'm sure there are many things that we can learn from it. But one thing that, that he highlighted in the book was that, you see, today when we hear of that, 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 that sutta, or the Buddha asked uh, Kotami to get five mustard seed. Yeah. Uh, you, you may think like, okay, uh, that's it, you know. But apparently there are black and white mustard seed. Yeah. There are two different types. And one of the type is, is, common, is commonly used as a medical agent, as a herb uh, in the Buddha's time. And perhaps even up to today, or like that traditional Indian medic medication, so, by, by you asking the uh, Kesa Gotami to get five mustard seeds, it was not just, just a random, go and, go and get five groundnuts. It was, he was actually making use of known medical uh, concepts. Yeah, so, it's not so far-fetched, you know. It's not simply just get anything. Uh, but the Buddha make use of existing medical knowledge that people already know. Yeah. So it was still credible. Mm. And that's why she was so ready to go and get it. Mm. Uh, with one condition, that the household must not have experienced any death. Mm. Uh, if he had just simply said, go and get five groundnuts, <laughs> but the groundnuts are, are never used, then it requires a huge leap of faith. Uh, so this, some of these things are quite interesting. Yeah? The, the context of the context. The Buddha... Um, is seen as a torchbearer of humankind, someone who brings light to the world, light of wisdom. Let's see what else. Yes. See here we see that they ascribe to this mission nothing short of a cosmic scope. Mm. Initially, when the Buddha first attained enlightenment, he did not really even consider wanting to teach. Right? Yes. Yes. Then how does this relate then to his mission of a cosmic scope of that? <laughs> First, from not wanting to even mm. spread the Dharma, yeah. what they've understood and uh, gain understanding of, uh. to now being the teacher of all Buddhists yeah. who aspire towards enlightenment. Yeah. This is a cosmic scope. How did that uh, so swing come? This is a very huge swing from nothingness to do. Yeah, everything. Uh, yeah. So, uh, in the text, we, we see that initially, and I mentioned yesterday night also, about how when he first started, when he obtained enlightenment, he had this question, this truth is so profound, who can understand it? Yeah. So in a way, it's not so much that he did not want to teach, but he found it perhaps um, unlikely that people will understand. Yeah, so he hesitated to teach. Not so much like he don't want to teach. Mm -hmm. There was hesitation. Of course, this itself, for many people, is a big question. If he has, if he's a Bodhisattva, as described in the Mahana teachings, then he by right shouldn't have this question mark. He, he really, he should know. Yeah. Yeah, so why should he still even hesitate? Yeah. Uh, but there's this whole set of texts uh, that describes that even this hesitation is just is part of the, in a way, a display. Yeah. 
in a way a display. Uh, and through that hesitation, then Brahma Sahabati would come down to ask for the teaching. Yeah. Uh, there's this verse that says that the Buddhas, uh, even to teach, require condition. And the condition is someone to ask for teachings. Uh, it may almost seems seem like a ritual, like as though it is just okay, must have someone to ask. Uh, but as I teach the or share on the Heart Sutra over the years, I start to appreciate this a bit better. That um, even as he's enlightened, if there's no one to request or a teaching, that means there's no purpose of a teacher. And if there's no one, no purpose for a teacher, and he just own self kakilai, huh? come to your door and hey, I am a Buddha, I want to teach you. It will not work. Then, yeah, ก็ไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไปไป
because the lifespan is so long, uh, is able to see that this is a Buddha. Uh, then came down to ask for teachings and the rest is history. So did he attain Arahant? Who that was? Brahma Sampati. Um, I can't remember seeing any... I don't recall. I don't recall. But there were other sutras where the Buddha went to the, the heavenly realms and the other, that's the Anagami, third stage enlightened ones, when they saw the Buddha, uh, they, they then told the Buddha that they have been there for a long, long time. They seen this Buddha, that Buddha, how many Buddha came and gone. Yeah. Uh, their lifespan is very long, but not all of them can, can so quickly attain enlightenment also. Yeah. They put the conditions for even the third stage to become an Arahant is so hard, not so trivial also. So the first five that came under not Buddha was then the last one. Oh, that's amazing. There's this, there's this, um, this teaching that says uh, if you are reborn in a human realm, it is more conducive for enlightenment. You see, as a human being, wake up for now, hit very itchy, suffering. <laughs> 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 wake up, you suffer. Wake up, oh, oh, high tide, oh, have to pee, suffering. Yeah. Have to wake up, oh, suffering. Yeah, well, have to wake up, suffering. Wake up, also suffering. Don't wake up, also suffering. Wake up, see, really, oh, let me suffer. Look at him again. Okay, come, Serene. According to the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha Gautama is not merely one unique individual who puts in an unprecedented appearance on the stage of human history and then bows out forever. He is rather the fulfillment of a primordial, primordial architect. architect, the most recent member of a ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็ก็
So this dynasty of Buddhas. Which is why whenever some Theravadan Buddhists say that, oh, your Mahanis have, Mahana Buddhism has a lot of uh, Buddha, ours only have one Buddha. So like, have you read your Nikayas actually? <laughs> yeah, because in the Nikaya, they have mentioned about many Buddhas in the past. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the key distinction is um, to, to um, pay so much reverence to the past Buddhas or even Buddhas in existence in other worlds. Uh, Mahayana Buddhism recognizes that there are past Buddhas, but in the present day, there's not just one Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha also. That there are other worlds out there, other worlds out there. Um, that is currently in existence, where there are some Buddhas who is currently teaching in other worlds also. And so this is perhaps one key distinction. Yeah. Um, this thing about the cosmic dynasty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the the it's about how before the Buddha there are there's this lineage, this lineage of Buddhas before him. And after him, there will be this lineage going indefinitely onward into the future. One key thing is that all these Buddhas uh, uh, all share certain qualities. Yeah? They all conform to certain qualities. And I really appreciate the, this Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi highlighting that early Buddhism, even in the Akai root text, that means the very early text uh, yeah, in the Nikayas, uh, really recognizes a plurality of Buddhas who all conform to certain fixed patterns of behavior. Yeah. Uh, and the broad outline is found in this Mahapadana Sutta, Dika Nikaya Fortin. This was Tathagata. I've read this explanation before. So in the Chinese text, sometimes they mention Ru Lai Ru Shi. Ru Lai Ru Shi. So the Ru Lai, but usually just referred to as Ru Lai. Yeah. Basically meaning that um, uh, the way he come about is as the past Buddha has done. Yeah? And likewise, he, will, uh, he has gone into the ultimate peace Nibbana. Yeah? Just as the Buddha in the past had. Yeah? Uh, in the Diamond Sutra, then it challenges this term. Yeah? It says, uh, or something like that. Yeah? Uh, so, Dhamma Sutra is, is, is always challenging the, the, the status quo of how we understand terms. Uh, it, it basically states that, in fact, while we say that the Buddha come about in this way, the Buddha is not attached to the process, not attached to the aggregates. Yeah. So, in fact, there's no one who come. And to enter Parinibbana, we usually think of the Buddha enter Parinibbana. But the truth is, the Buddha is not attached to the aggregate. So, who is going into Parinibbana? No one is entering into Parinibbana. So, in that, in fact, someone who is known as Tathagata uh, is not Tathagata. And that's why it's called Tathagata. Yeah. But that is another thing altogether. It is a complete school of study altogether. So, Buddhists have a relation to 
So understanding of the small beginning of time. Uh, yes, yes. Through, even in the previous section and up to this point, this is continually highlighted. That there's no stress of anything. Yeah. It has its element. Endless cycle. Yeah. Or rather, it is a beginningless cycle. There's no coming and there's no such thing as going. It just goes. Uh, no, not a close suit also. Uh, not a close suit also. But more about uh, how before the Buddha, there is, there's, uh, there's a numberless, there's no first Buddha, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Um, frankly speaking, uh, sometimes when I think about it, to, to say that there is no first sentient being, that means we have been around for a long time. In a way, somehow I can accept that. But when you say no first Buddha, no start, no, no first Buddha, third, no sentient being who first attained enlightenment, right? I sometimes can accept, sometimes I find myself questioning it also. Uh, not saying that I don't accept it, but I have, I feel like, eh, something is. A bit stranger. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and it's not just now, no. It's not only oh. now. Uh, all the while I have this question mark about this part. Yeah. But I uh, I always come back to okay, so what if there is a first Buddha or no first Buddha? Well, I can't prove or disprove whether there's a first Buddha or not. But that doesn't change the principle of causality. Could it be because um, Buddha said that what he has taught us is just the leaves in his hand uh, and what he knows is the whole forest. Yes. Could it be because um, he mentioned about beginning less time because it's too complex to make it known to the um, to the people like us. So um, maybe only if you become a Buddha, then you will really understand, uh, you know, like so whether there is a beginning or not. Yeah. So about that, the beginningless part, he actually in the past few chapters that we have gone through, he actually in various ways explained that he saw for himself that there is no beginning. Yeah. Um, but it is. Uh, this this sutta, the Simsapa Lipa, mm -hmm. uh, is oftentimes cited in the Mahana tradition as a basis that whatever is found in the Mahana Sutra yeah, is actually the, the forest part. Yeah, it's the forest part. Yeah. So there are things that in the Nikayas is not covered, but it's covered in the, in the Mahana text. Uh, as to the beginningless part, it, he was quite clear about it. Uh, I guess what it, what is missing for myself and perhaps for some of us is that we haven't reached the state to actually see past lives, you know. So it's so it's still a question of is it the way it is? But I have uh, I have ever shared with Venerable uh, Bikuni Bodhi, not Bikuni Bikuni Bodhi this uh, crazy idea of her. Uh, but before I share with her, she has disrobed a few years ago. Uh, she is now known as Sister Ming. Uh, 
and uh, she is teaching in the Buddhist College of Singapore at the moment. Before I shared with her my crazy idea, I told her, you must know this is my own crazy idea, okay? Uh, this is not canonical. So if you uh, accept it and you go to hell, that's not my problem. Huh? And spirituality is not canonical. <laughs> Uh, you all want to know? Yeah. Sure. I don't mind going to Oh, you don't mind? No, 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 So, um, so what is this, this, uh, idea? Um, this, this, this concept or idea came about after many rounds of teaching the Heart Sutra, where we say that even wisdom itself, Wisdom is the uh, non-arising of ignorance. There's no extra wisdom that you actually get outside. It is simply that ignorance don't arise, then you call that wisdom. Yeah, then you call that wisdom. So, with respect to unenlightened ones, an arahan has wisdom. Arahan and Arahan comparatively, no difference in wisdom. So, no wisdom. Among Arahans, there's no wisdom or no wisdom. Understand? Compared to an unenlightened one, Arahan has wisdom. Compared to an Arahan, uh, no, compared to an unenlightened one, Arahan has wisdom. Compared to Arahans, we don't have wisdom. But compared to each other, there's no no extra wisdom or less wisdom. Relatively speaking. Because in your context, for them, there's really no arising of ignorance. Yeah. So there's actually no, no concept of the term called wisdom in the first place. Yeah. Because they've gone through the stage where yeah. ignorance does not arise at all. Yeah. But relative to us, we say that they have wisdom. So among them, there's no difference of wisdom or no wisdom. So far, so good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. 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 Uh,呃空观它的那个深度很有点有些时候会有点啊因为我们一般说你要证得阿耨多罗三藐三菩提我要开智慧我要修啊什么什么但是佛教说修到最后修什么不是说修了没有而是说事实上我们智慧的升起并不是说
，所以凡夫跟凡夫比较之下，没有所谓的他有智慧没智慧，从有和无。<笑>然后呢，阿罗汉跟阿罗汉呢也是平级的，所以阿罗汉跟阿罗汉比比起来呢，没有说这个有智慧，这个没智慧，也就没有这个有无名，这个没有无名。但是阿罗汉跟佛比起来呢，嗯、啊，他又有无名的问题了。嗯，啊、嗯、，So from arahants compared to Buddha, then again there's a distinction. Then in a way, then suddenly arahants we say that they have they still have ignorance compared to Buddha. Yeah. And Buddha, compared to Arahants, has more wisdom than them. Yeah. Arahants have no ignorance as far as how things are, but they still, and and this is collaborated inside the Nikayas that Arahants, the definition itself don't guarantee that they will know how to teach. Yeah. So with respect to being able to teach, they still have ignorance. Buddhas is complete in this aspect. Now Buddhas and Buddhas they are equal. So Buddhas to Buddhas also no such thing as wisdom or no wisdom. So then, if you go by this, so then I I share with Sister Ming the time I I said if we go along this line, then compared to if there's a lower state of existence from us, then that lower state is considered even more ignorant. Yeah. Say for example, I I don't know. I, I for example, we are unenlightened to unenlightened. There's no distinction. But at at least compared to to this, this is totally not aware. So this one in a way have ignorance, because <laughs> it's totally not aware. But we have we we have some form of wisdom we are aware. Yeah. And then compared to enlightened ones, we are not aware also. So, so I I told Sister Ming that, what if you then draw a line, then by right the line shouldn't stop at Buddha. Then there's a possibility that once you attain Buddhahood, then you see that oh that's actually, yeah, but again ah, ah this part, ah is irrelevant to us ah, yeah because we haven't even reached the Arahant stage yet. Yeah, so I, I'm uh, my own little crazy thought is perhaps the Simsapa forest, that example, is that when you reach Bernapur, then you see the much larger picture, uh, and in that way it is meaningless because there is there's an endless stream of lower state of existence, and there's an endless level of of higher existence. Yeah. Yeah. But in the meantime, we are still suffering at this state. So the Buddha, by helping us to move away from this state, at least solve the problem here first. Maybe as in the Mahayana Sutra, it says that actually when you reach the higher state, it's it's also endless. You have to continue. There's so much things to do. But relative to us, we are no more of suffering. 
，至少我们我们现在人类啊，啊，我们看得到，呃，看得到的是呃动物，也看不到的是变的可能是真的。嗯，动物我们看得到是，他们其实吃没有肉肉强食啊，肉肉强食没有说对跟错，嗯，对吧？在我们人类哦，呃，你。杀人就是错，对啊，这一点我看不到。对，所以，所以，所以可以说是一种进化。啊啊啊！所以，我刚才说的那个观点呢、啊，就是因为现在问嘛，说，那我们的我们这个无始时来哈、啊，是是怎么去理解？是不是说只是？因为我们不能理解，所以佛不跟我们讲，这个是一个很大的问号。他应该是继续修了，继续修了。对，说不定他们家是 IT 的，啊，或者是阿飞，或者是阿飞。因为很多东西你看得到的话，你呃是要去面对吗？啊，理解吗？而不是不知道的你去去猜测啊。对 ，yes， yeah， most most agree on that。呃 ，whatever we can see and perceive， that is what we need to face and to overcome or solve。呃 ，there are a lot of possibilities out there， but those possibilities don't directly affect us。and so to spend u、uh, time on that is in a way fruitless。yeah， in a way fruitless。at least for me， and I think、uh, go agree、uh,。Yeah. Uh, that there's just so much possibilities. Yeah, uh, it's been a, it's been many years since I raised this again. Yeah, uh, but not that I just ignore it. Uh, but I come back to as Go said, uh, what you can see and experience, you must face this and solve this first. Yeah, those possibilities. Uh, even even the point about. Is that heaven or pure land? To me, that is for me secondary,、uh, and to some extent even irrelevant. Yeah,、uh, even irrelevant. Some students ask me, "Is it true that Maitreya Buddha will arrive two、uh, thousand years later, or two thousand five hundred years later, or is it five thousand years later, or ten thousand years later?" I tell them, "I say, well, whether he will arrive." Next week, or five thousand years later, the truth is, if you are attached to something or someone, and that something or someone changes or is taken away from you, you suffer. This is an irrefutable truth. Even Christians cannot refute that. Even Hindu cannot refute. No one can refute that,、uh, and that's why it's called the truth. This is when people ask you that question. It's like it's always been said, right? Those who are born in the era where Maitreya Buddha comes will all attain enlightenment、uh, from his、uh, teachings. So they're hoping to quickly take the fast express train out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can come next week and when? Yeah, I'll go there quickly. Yeah, but what they don't realize is,、uh, even in such a case,、um, it means that those who have Those who get reborn at the Maitreya Buddha's time as a human being have cultivated to that point. It is like saying,、uh, "Okay, 
I was going to say, if you are from RJ, you confirm enter university, ma. Then again, I realized no, no, not, no, true, not true. true. <laughs> not true. <laughs> not true, huh? Yeah. Even those who get into university don't of all, not all of them graduate. In fact, when I was in university, uh, a good number of those who are from the top JCs actually fare worse than us from the third tier, <laughs> or second tier JCs. They burn out. Uh, either burn out or sometimes um, in some of these so-called so university uh, JCs, the way of study is it's just that they happen to have more exposure because the, the school give them exposure to a lot more things than the reading curriculum. Yeah. So whereas when you come to university, everybody is given the same thing. Yeah. So then how smart you are uh, is, is different again. The, the playing field is level up. Yeah, I would actually use about wisdom and ignorance at the different stages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, once you reach that, then yeah, in a way you go like level playing field already. Yeah. This was another uh that is another confusion that I have again about yeah. the ignorance of time. Because yeah. from the English Buddhist course that we attended, right? Yeah. Uh I think when Chilin Sufu was studying uh, teaching us about the various groups of Buddhas. Yeah. So Sukamani Buddha is not the second group, there's another initial first group of I think seventeen or Buddhas. Oh. She said that even the first two Buddhas, right, they were not uh, even identified as Buddhas until the third Buddha came about and recognized them. Oh. So the first two wasn't like even listed oh. until the third Buddha came and said that these two were actually Buddhas. Oh. So are they are they actually Samasambuddha or Achika Buddha? No, full, full Buddhas. Oh, okay. So it also then relates back to your question. Oh, they even the first sentient being. First, these two Buddhas were like recognized by the third Buddha. They mm. weren't re really like, you know, and then fight straight away as a Buddha. Okay. Yes, I want to change. So, if the third Buddha recognized them, so were they even the first sentient being before this Buddha oh. was being. I, I don't know what, what are the texts that she used for that class, uh, but I, I personally, I must admit, uh, I'm not so well schooled in this area. Mm. Yeah, uh, because the the text that my teacher goes through focuses primarily on the the practice portion. Yeah. Um, having said that, the yeah, I'm not so aware of there being a first group versus second group. But in the Yoga Sutra, there is mention about um, the cycles, cycles of the universe. Mm. Where the there's the cycle of expansion and cycle of contraction, uh, or cycle of increase and decrease, where the human lifespan will increase up to a certain point, then decrease again, mm. up to a certain point, then increase again, and so on. Yeah, cycles mm. of increase and decrease. So um, based on that cycle. Then they say that, okay, within this cycle, the Buddha is don't know, number 7 or number 9 Buddha, something like that. Uh, other than that, I, I don't know whether she was referring to this group thing. But it then starts to relate from your question of saying a first sentient being. Oh. Then how, is there really a beginning of time? Probably oh. not, because even if these two can be 
identified and recognized only by the third giver, um, then what came in before that? Uh, was there a possibility of even more Buddhas in front? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, Besides, the, the endless start of time uh, is probably then very, very apparent. Yeah. Which then relates back to your question. My question. But it's just first sentient being. Uh, as far as the first sentient being part, I'm quite clear that there shouldn't be, there couldn't have been a first sentient being. Uh, the reason being that for a sentient being to arise, there must be causes and conditions. Unless we are saying that the sentient being just arises randomly. Yeah. So for example, if a sentient being is born as a human, then who is the father and mother? So the father and mother must have come before this. So the father and mother, uh, even if for the sentient being to just occur randomly, must have father and mother also. So this is the first problem with having a first uh, sentient being. But let's say it's not a human. Let's say it's a heavenly being where you don't need father and mother. But even then, for a heavenly being to arise, uh, what were the causes and conditions for it to arise? Yeah. Uh, compared to a human being, where we say that the merits are different, so why is this being able to arise randomly with so much merit, being mm. a heavenly being? Or you may say that, oh, maybe how about helping? Helping also don't need father and mother. Then, compared to a human being, hell beings have much lesser merit, but instead have a lot of demerit. In which case, then we have to ask, why is it that this being should arise randomly uh, with so much demerit? Yeah. And as long as there's one, one um, so-called injustice or one disparity, then the whole system is not sound. Yeah. We don't need all... all sentient beings to have problem in their arising. We just need that if under the system that we propose, if one, especially the first one, is not sound, then the whole thing collapses. Yeah. So in the suttas, the Buddha described that if you will try to trace back uh, a bit, an earlier earlier form, you find that there's no end. There's no end in the beginning. Meaning that there's no beginning. Yeah. So this part I'm quite okay. In a way, I'm also, I, I mentioned that I have questions, but not that I cannot accept also. In that, in the sense that, if you consider a Buddha, a Buddha, when the Buddha arrives, must have had um, the, the teachings from a previous Buddha. Uh, but this is where, perhaps there's a possibility that Again, uh, this is about possibility already, which then makes it a moot point that is irrelevant. Uh, if you go with the sentient beings, that because for sentient beings to arise, there must have been past ignorance. Yeah? So, ago, beginningless. So, likewise, for a Buddha, uh, for an enlightened being to arise, there must have been teachings from another enlightened being. Yeah? If you go by this route, then no, no, no problem. Uh, but if you consider that, uh, is it possible that sentient beings, after going through endless cycle of, of birth and death, would have retained some experiences and to just get so, and somehow come to the 
come to this realization, yeah, that oh yeah, why do I keep acting in this way? And just because let's say out of the innumerable sentient beings, maybe ten percent or even just one percent start to like, hey, maybe we should do something about it. <laughs> and then out of this one percent, only one percent manage to progress. But given the innumerable number of sentient beings, you just need one percent per per cycle. Uh. Then after a long time, boom, one one arise as a Buddha. <laughs> is it possible? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. So if that is possible, then there's a possibility that maybe a long, long time ago and before that beginningless wandering, then arise one Buddha. Then from there it catalyzed the the future, the subsequent Buddhas, you know. But having said that, uh, this is not canonical. Uh. This is not canonical. So this is just my conjecture. Uh, in a way, some of my thoughts, I must admit, is influenced by science, evolution theory. Yeah. So in evolution theory, it says that uh, it is possible that in the large uh, expanse of cosmic time, that after a lot of combination, then arise this combination called protein. Yeah. And after a lot of this combination, then arise complex uh, uh, multi-cell organ, you know, and, and so on, until to the point where there is what we call sentient arising. Yeah. So, having said all that, uh, whether we arise because of this way, whether wisdom of Buddha arise, was there a first Buddha or no first Buddha? Uh, the truth is, today, whatever we have retained uh, seems to apply. That if you are attached to something, and that something is taken away from you, then you suffer. To the degree that you are attached, to the degree you suffer. That much is true. Uh, okay, 11 o'clock. So maybe uh, Vivian, you want to read the next paragraph? <coughs> Go the Nikayas, page 44. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah, I was actually a bit concerned just now whether it's. No, because I, I think it's the the light cools around my eyes. I, I do, when I read, I do need brighter light than normal people under certain light conditions. People oh. can see, but I think it's just me. Oh, you know, for, me, for me, after I got Lao Hua, I also need. Oh. Yeah,要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈？啊，要不要多来哈
like a what is meteor. It? meteor against the blackness of the night sky. From time to time, a Buddha will appear against the backdrop of boundless space and time, lighting up the spiritual firmament of the world, shedding the brilliance of his wisdom upon those capable of seeing the truth that he illuminates. illuminates. The being who is to become a Buddha is called in Pali Bodhisattva, a word better known in the Sanskrit form Bodhisattva. According to the common Buddhist tradition, a Bodhisattva is one who undertakes a long course of spiritual development, consciously motivated by the aspiration to attain future Buddhahood. Inspired and sustained by the great compassion for living beings merged in the suffering of birth and death, a Bodhisattva fulfills, over many eons of cosmic time, the difficult cause needed to fully master the requisites for supreme enlightenment. When all these requisites are complete, he attains Buddhahood in order to establish the Dharma in the world. A Buddha discovers the long lost path to liberation, the ancient path traveled by the Buddhas of the past that culminates in the boundless freedom of Nibbana. Having found the path and traveled it to its end, he then teaches it in all its fullness to humanity so that many others can either enter the way to find can enter the way to final liberation. Thank you. So the the Buddha, this is interesting, uh, the way he described it that in the Nikaya, uh, the the Buddha is intrinsic to the cosmic process. That uh, time from time to time a Buddha would appear uh, in, the, in this world, will arise in this world. Yeah. Uh, one thing to note is that uh, it is not a given. Yeah. Uh, it is not a given that a Buddha must appear. Uh, if a Buddha must appear, that means it's like, okay, like imagine if we represent all the sentient beings in this world, that means somehow, you lucky or not, someone will become a Buddha. Uh, but it's not like that. It is that if, over time, given the conditions, there are those who is striving on this path and in due time one of them will attain enlightenment yeah. uh, given their striving and this is the key thing that there must be someone who is striving towards Buddhahood for a Buddha to arise oh. uh, so here highlighted the term Bodhisattva or Bodhisattva yeah. more uh, better well known better known in the Sanskrit form Bodhisattva yeah, because in the Mahayana tradition, uh, we highlight Bodhisattva a lot more than in the Theravadan tradition. So both terms are found in both traditions, yeah, but uh, not so highlighted in the Theravadan uh, lineage. Yeah. So, let me see. Mm. Uh, I once shared in some classes about how the Buddha is like a is like a disaster recovery expert. Yeah. In the IT world, we have something called a disaster recovery plan. Yeah. So, uh, DR in short. So, when we set up a system, when we plan for a system, design a system, part of the design is to design a, a contingency for disaster. Uh, this is quite uh, unknown in 
Chinese business style in Singapore. Uh, Chinese business style is just just get the things going and use it until it die. Then try to fix it when it's broken. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas in the perhaps not so much the IT, but perhaps in the modern Western world, this is just part of planning. Yeah. Uh, but especially so in the IT world. It became more apparent after 2004. 2004. With the uh, 911. Uh, well, maybe even more so. Maybe even more so. But even when I was in the IT field, disaster recovery was. Uh, but maybe uh, you're right that after 2004, or for everybody, it becomes more apparent. But for companies such as uh, mine and those that is in the forefront, uh, it is always um, there that when you design something, you must have a disaster recovery plan. Meaning that no matter how it, it breaks down, when the system is totally down, how do you recover it? Yeah. Uh, when I first learned about that the Buddha does, uh, the Buddha is someone who, when the teaching is totally wiped out, okay, no longer known to anybody, then the Buddha will arise and rediscover it. Then I thought, ah, the Buddha is like a, a tech team, you know? Yeah. The specialist. Yeah. We are such this system down, come and destroy it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so in many ways, the Buddha is like those scientists who have come before us. Yeah. When Isaac Newton uh, discovered or invented the law of gravity, he didn't really create it. Gravity was always gravity. Yeah. It's just that he formulated uh, a set of equations to describe the phenomena that he observed. In many ways, the Buddha is more like a physicist, like Isaac Newton, like many other physicists and scientists, than an artist. Yeah. Uh, artists look at the world and then create what he perceive is a perception thing, you know. Yeah. That's why art, you put apple orange here, everybody draws differently. Yeah. But scientists, all the scientists must come up with the same equation to describe that. Yeah. And similarly, all Buddhas will describe the, the Four Noble Truths in the same way. Yeah. It's not a matter of creativity. No creativity required in Buddhism. Yeah. Maybe in the way it's expressed to teach, yeah, there's creativity. But the truth itself is not creative. It is the way it is. Okay, let's go for one more paragraph before we wrap up for today. This, however, does not exhaust the function of a Buddha. A Buddha understands and teaches not only the path leading to the supreme state of ultimate liberation, the perfect bliss of Nibbana, but also the paths, least, the paths leading to the various types of wholesome mundane happiness to which human beings aspire. A Buddha proclaims both a path of mundane enhancement that enables sentient beings to plant wholesome roots, productive of happiness, peace, and security in the worldly dimensions of their lives, and a path of world transcendence to guide sentient beings to Nibbana. His role is thus much wider than an exclusive focus on the transcendent aspects of his teaching, might suggest. He is not merely a mentor of ascetics and contemplatives, 
not merely guide to the <coughs> excuse me. Not merely guide to the Dharma oh, in not, its not merely a teacher of meditation techniques. Not merely a teacher of meditation techniques and philosophical insights, but a guide to the Dharma in its full range and depth. One who reveals, proclaims, and establishes all the principles integral to the correct understanding and wholesome conduct, whether mundane or transcendental. Text 2, 1, highlights this whole-ranging altruistic, altruistic dimension of a Buddha's career when it praises the Buddha as the one person who arises in the world for the welfare of the multitude. For the happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of the devas and humans. Thank you. Yeah. So this this uh, paragraph um, highlights the broad range of uh, teachings that the Buddha gave. Uh, the sometimes as we uh, if we attend Dharma classes, the tendency is to veer away from the traditional uh, like folklore Buddhism, you know, the Pai Pai. Uh, for many people, once you come in touch with Dharma, we tend to take the oh, uh, no more praying, no more asking for this and that. that. That part is still correct. But to then simply think that, oh, the Buddha only teach people to attain enlightenment. He did teach enlightenment as the supreme goal. Yeah, but he also shares with various people uh, the, the, the benefits of uh, how they can live their life in a fruitful way, how if they want to have uh, fortune, they can actually accumulate merits to have fortune. How even if you want to be born in heaven, uh, you can actually practice virtue to be reborn in heaven. And how even if you want to be in the higher states of heavenly realm, you can practice meditation without having to go all the way to be enlightened. Uh, but of course, when there are suitable conditions, he will share with individuals the next higher stage. Yeah. So he, he teaches, um, that's why he's known as the knower of the world. Yeah. He knows how, uh, last time when I hear of this term, Loka Vidu, knower of the world, uh, it is like, oh, this guy is very smart, he knows all the different places. But the full extent of this verse is that he knows exactly how the different world come about. Meaning, for example, heavenly realm. How does being get reborn in that realm? Uh, it is through these conditions, these merits. So if you want to be reborn in the heavenly realm, this is how you go there. How you get reborn as a human being? Uh, you also know how to be reborn there. And how does one pass away in this world and don't arise again in this world. Uh, he knows how it happens also. Uh, including the lower realms. Hell, animal and ghost realm. Uh, so if you want to go to any of these lower realms, uh, he, he also highlighted how you can go there. <laughs> but not that he encouraged you to go there. He highlighted this so that you don't end up there. Yeah. So uh, this, this paragraph is interesting because um, in a way it it shows that the Buddha uh, do not go on a one track. Everybody must get enlightened. Ideally, everybody can get enlightened and should strive in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
the Buddha recognized that not everybody is ready. Yeah. Some are... It's, and, and it's not a matter of right or wrong. We're just at different stages. Uh, so at different stages, we have different aspirations. And so the Buddha would uh, teach accordingly. Uh, next week, when we come back, we'll go further and look at this. Uh, and uh, we'll see how we can cover the introduction, then go into the text proper. So just one yes. last question. Uh -huh. The last sentence that says that uh, for the welfare of the multitude, for the happiness of the multitude, our compassion for the world, for the good welfare and happiness of neighbors and humans. Yes. Was it intentionally meant to only highlight these two realms and yes. not the others? Yes. Uh, the, the term Ren Tian Si Deva Manusana uh, the teacher of gods and men. Uh, the reason being, those beings in the lower realms typically are incapable to to learn the Dharma directly. Yeah, you may um, how do I put it? You may perhaps form a positive karmic link with them, but in this life itself, incapable of attaining enlightenment. Whereas for heavenly beings and human realm, uh, it is still possible. Uh, it is still possible. So, uh, for animal realms, for example, mm, there's one uh, account about how the, the Buddha, he had many disciples, and one of them, uh, there, there were two monks who were staying in a hut. So one day, when one of the monks uh, came back and opened the door, one huge snake fought, came dropped off from the from the door and uh, like dropped off and landed on the floor and frightened him. So he went to report to the Buddha, uh, and it was basically that it was actually a monk. The snake. Uh, apparently was able to take the form of a human being. And he, he did that in order to ordain as a monk. Yeah, to cultivate. But when he was resting, then there's a lapse of mindfulness. So, so he, yeah, the form came back as I a snake. <laughs> I don't know what... <laughs> uh, but Pai <laughs> Sertuan definitely came after yeah. the Buddha's uh, this account. Uh, so maybe inspired uh, yeah. yeah. So... When the Buddha heard about it, the Buddha asked the monk over and uh, questioned him whether he is really a snake and he, uh, he admitted that he's a snake. Uh, then the Buddha said, uh, you, that is not correct. You should not uh, adopt a human form to ordain. Yeah. You may continue to learn the teachings, but you cannot uh, do that. Uh, there are a few reasons for that. One of them is that uh, beings in the lower realms by virtue of their rebirth. The, 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 the reason for their rebirth is because of heavy past karma, negative karma. So when they are still going through that, uh, no matter how they practice, they cannot uh, have a breakthrough. They just cannot have a breakthrough. Yeah. So because of that, um, they, they can still learn Dharma, but it's, uh, they, they will not have breakthrough as a as a Sangha member. So whereas for the Sangha is uh, in a way 
one could say that it's quite exclusive. Uh. It's for those who can attain enlightenment. Yeah. It's the fast track to enlightenment. Yeah. So there are other cases of individuals who are rejected. Yeah. Those with uh, heavy handicap uh, or born with handicap. Yeah. So in Buddhism, we say that those who are born with certain deformity, handicap, or have he- some kind of heavy illnesses are typically those with heavy karma ripening. So with heavy karma ripening, not suitable to practice. Um, centuries later, in Chinese history, uh, Buddhist history, there are even accounts of those with heavy karma who try to ordain. The moment they enter into the home, they pass away. Yeah, because the the karmic influence just don't allow them to even take ordination. Yeah, but there are those accounts where the heavy karma ripening, and if they can go through it, then okay, they are, they they can progress. But if they cannot go through it, they probably will just die. Yeah. So, uh, in the Buddha's time, they are forbidden from that. So part of the 13, 12 or thirteen questions that we are asked when we want to ordain is whether you are a human being. Wu Shi Ren Fou. Yeah. I mean, today sometimes we, we look at it like almost like a joke. It's like, uh, any non human beings here? Probably yeah. because of the book of the one you just mentioned with the snake. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. precisely. That's what I'm saying. That because of that incident, henceforth, the Buddha set down this rule that whoever wants to be ordained will have to be asked this question and you must answer truthfully whether you are a human being or not. If you are non-human being, you are not allowed to audit. Yeah, you are not allowed to audit. So, the question is, why is there still a distinction between male and female in the in the monastic order? So if you if if a person were to really sit down to read through the Vinaya, yeah, you'll find that there is a subset that is common. Okay? There's a subset that is common. Then there's uh, another set which is unique to the nuns. And maybe a smaller set that is unique to the monks. Most of the rules that apply to the monks apply to the nuns also. But there are some rules that apply to the nuns that don't apply to the monks. Yeah. Uh, let me explain. When the Buddha first uh, gave teachings to the five ascetics, they are already ascetics. And they practice the extreme form of asceticism. So for these first five monks, he didn't even set down any rules for them. Because they have taken upon themselves very strict regime. So strict that most people cannot take it. <laughs> even cultivators cannot take it. So only a very select few. So he didn't have to give them more rules. In fact, he has to tell them to give up some of the practices. Yeah? The, to take the middle path. Now, um, later on, Prince Yasa, together with the with the with his uh, with his friends, formed the to come in and form the sixty monks, the first sixty monks. Now they are also spiritually developed, but they are 
uh, in a way they they are they are royal. Uh. The first five are actually ministers from the court who were tasked to come and bring him back, bring the Buddha back. But they couldn't convince him, so stay on to prove <laughs> him. Yeah, uh, I I once sort of joke lah. There's no evidence of that. But I was thinking the reason why they stay is perhaps if you feel in a mission, you go back in Kanto, <laughs> possibly. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was partly out of devotion to the prince also. Yeah, because the prince was well loved by the people. Mm. Now even Prince Yasa and the sixteen monks, uh, they were of a certain caliber. Uh, because if they want to enjoy, they can just enjoy their life. Yeah, but they choose to go forth, so their conviction is quite strong. So it is said that in the first 12 years, there were no rules that were set. First 12 years, a long time, no? Yeah, because those who come into the order are all uh, very firm in their determination, willing to take on the practice. Yeah, uh, and don't really have much bad habits. Later on, uh, uh, I think it was Uyadin, uh, first one to break the rules and, <laughs> and then set down the first rule. Then after that, uh, there, were, there was this phrase called the group of six. There were six monks who were always finding loopholes <laughs> and then doing all kinds of funny things. So with each of the incursion, and what was the incursion? They did, did things that was not helpful to their own practice. Yeah. Uh, initially, it was mainly about their own practice and in some cases, harming harmful to others, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So then the Buddha set down rules accordingly. So how about the nuns? The nuns came quite much later. When the Buddha went back to see, the, see his father, uh, then uh, I think sometime around that time, then uh, he ordained his son, Rahula, and then there was the first novice, and with that, uh, the, the father asked for uh, uh, asked the Buddha to have consideration. So a rule was set that whoever come to ordain, uh, we will ask, does your parents agree? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so so this is from that incident. Mm. Then around that time, uh, Queen Padrapati, Maha Padrapati, uh, came to ask the Buddha for ordination with the court ladies. Uh, initially, the Buddha rejected. Then, Venerable Ananda is said to have uh, like spoken to the Buddha uh, on behalf and asked, like, does it mean that they are not able to attain enlightenment? Then, it is said that the Buddha mentioned about how if they were to join in, then the, the, the Buddha Sasana will be shortened by 500 years. Yeah. So, unless they observe these eight rules, so, um, there are many people who say that these eight are actually later inventions. Um, that these were put in place by misogynists. That means those who somehow in history seems like a lot of people just torture women, uh, like don't like women, misogynists. Yeah, those with a deep-seated hatred or dislike towards women. Uh, uh, it's questionable whether it's this way or that way, but so far in all the different uh, lineages, this is what is recorded. But barring this, um, the extra rules didn't come about because of the monks. 
it came about because of these senior nuns who were first admitted. Because uh, Queen Mahapradapati is the Buddha's foster mother, is the sister of Queen Maya, who is the actual mother. So imagine you are the queen, and if you decide to become a nun, it, it must have very strong reasons. It's not that, well, now, as a queen, cannot, you know, cannot make a living, so have to yeah. go and become a nun. Mm. So for her, her determination is very strong. Mm. Uh, but many of those who follow in were court ladies. Mm. Yeah? So some of them uh, are royalty, some are very rich people. And accordingly, in the text it says that they would go for, uh, attend this and that, that is not proper. Uh, and that, as a result, the senior nuns actually uh, consulted the Buddha and asked, is this proper? The junior nuns went to go and do this do that. Mm -hmm. Then the senior nuns came to see the Buddha and asked, is this proper? Yeah, in a way, if you ask me, uh, I'm criticizing myself again, like uh, Sunday, that concept, if you really go by the rule, it's not proper for uh, for monastic to go and watch a, a concert, you know? Yeah. Uh, and um, so if I had a choice, I, would, I wouldn't I would own self go and buy a ticket and want to go and yeah. watch. Yes. It's offered and part of culture, okay lah, go and watch. But you don't see me, like, you happen to come and see me, then I'm playing the uh, thing I'm watching. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that sense. Mm -hmm. yeah, but so, there were some rules that were set because of that. So this is one part. Uh, having said that, although the rules were set for nuns, I have shared this with some monks uh, and nuns also. I said, I said, although these rules are specific to nuns because the nuns were the ones who do it, I would say that these same rules do apply to monks also. Because what is not becoming for monastic should apply for both monks and nuns. But it was recorded in the nuns' vinaya because the nuns were one who do it. Yeah. And no monks ever do it, somehow. Mm -hmm. Okay? S second category of the extra rules are those that were meant to protect the nuns. Initially, monks and nuns, they, were, they don't have monasteries. So they stay in the forest, they stay in empty, empty huts, they stay in caves, they stay in the cemetery, anywhere. There was a place in the Buddha's time called the Black Forest. And that was where um, it was actually quite dangerous. Um, I don't know specifically why it's called Black Forest, but perhaps it's very thick. So um, even in daytime, maybe it's very dark. So um, in the text, it says that robbers would often be around there. Yeah, so if people pass by, they have to be very cautious. Yeah, otherwise they might get robbed or attacked. Yeah. So some of the nuns somehow ventured there and then got attacked. Yeah. And uh, attacked in various ways, including being sexually assaulted. Yeah. So out of protection for the nuns, when it was told to the Buddha, then the Buddha set down certain rules that when the when the nuns were to exit the vicinity of uh, what we call monastery in those days, what is a monastery in those days, once they exit the, the vicinity, they must go in pairs. They cannot travel on their own. Uh, they cannot stay by themselves also. Because what happened is that when they stayed in huts by themselves, they also got attacked. <laughs> yeah. 
this is by no means uh, misogynistic. It is by no means uh, a criticism of female form. Yeah, but it's simply a recognition that well, what to do? Men are men are so stupid. See a few, uh, a single woman in the forest have to attack. Yeah. Now one may also then question: How come the Buddha don't set a rule for all the all those girls? You want to set a rule for robbers? <laughs> you cannot go and control robbers, uh. So prevention is better than cure. So a lot of these extra rules were there to protect the nuns actually. Um, isn't true mm. there's one rule where the nuns are not allowed to uh, haul the sheet and throw it over the wall is there ever heard of that haul the sheet and yeah, throw it over the like wall. the nuns they were too lazy to after they get the oh. cake and, and then instead of pouring it away they thought that nobody oh, passed, they just and then just threw it it's, and then it landed on one of the guy one of the was going to see the king or whatever, oh. so something like that. Have you read this? Because I, I was told there's such a rule. It was quite so it stuck here. I was oh. like, oh, that was that. So the, the guys didn't have that, but the ladies have one rule that they are not supposed to throw the sheet oh. over the wall. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I haven't encountered that rule before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've read through the 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 Vinaya for okay. months and months, yeah. but maybe I, you can. I, I, I didn't verify that. that. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but all the rules happen because someone does yeah. something. Yeah, that's why like they have this, this thing that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think there is an opportunity for that at this to stage. To happen. Yeah, but it was like throw it over the wall. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. That's funny. So, as much as uh, the, the nuns, so strangely enough, if you actually look at the Vinaya, uh, in some of the sutras, it mentions about the nuns having 500 rules. Yeah. So in the Chinese tradition, we always think of nuns having 500 rules. But actually, if you look at Vinaya, it's 300 over rules, not 500. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that 100 extra came about. Yeah. Uh, but I also wonder whether it's a figurative form. Like, you know, like sometimes we in Hokkien, uh, when we talk, then Zui Tao, Zui Tao. Bui Gao Zap, Jia Ba La. Yeah, you know, like close to 100. But That's actually, maybe. Yeah, round up, yeah, yeah. round yeah. up, round down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the rules is that, um, so that day I talked to someone about this also. Um, for example, in most Buddhist tradition, the monks will sit in front and the nuns will sit after that. Yeah. So some people, some female students have asked me before, why is it like that, so unfair? So I told them, when I went to the meditation retreat center, and because I'm a monk, I have to sit in front. You know how stressful it is. <laughs> I'll be very happy to swap place with even the lay people, sit right at the back. <laughs> Not that I'm going to be lazy, but you know, you're not so stressed. It's like, well, even if you need to move, you don't have to move. <laughs> wow, 100 pairs of eyes behind looking at you. <laughs> and... On top of that, I, when did I mention this? Uh, I think did I mentioned to you maybe recently. So there's seven, seven cluster, four communities, seven cluster. Monks, nuns, the probationer nuns, then the novice nun, monk, novice nun, 
layman laywoman. For us fully ordained monks, we are required uh, to know the, the, the Vinaya of all seven categories. For laymen and laywomen, you all don't have any responsibility, you just know your own and because it's identical. Yeah? For novice, they, uh, they are not really required also, uh, they just need to know their own. But of course, by knowing their own, they will know the rules for the lay people because mm -hmm. it's a superset. Yeah? The lay people is just a subset. Mm -hmm. For the probationer, they need to know their own on top of that, that, that extra aid. For the nuns, they need to know their own, which would encompass the rest. But for us, we need to know everybody. Yeah. So it's added responsibility. Um, a few years back in Meta Welfare, there was the novice uh, retreat. So I was invited to give a series of teachings throughout the whole retreat on the merits of ordination of monastic life. So the 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 nuns who were instructors actually attended the talk yeah, for a few days, I mean throughout. Right? So after a few days, when I finished and I, I came down uh, from the stage, then about two or three of them uh, consulted me, asked, asked to see me and say that they had questions to ask me. So I thought, okay, yeah, what questions do you have? So they asked me uh, some questions about uh, if a person, if a lady under such circumstances is she allowed to ordain? Yeah. Ask me this question. Uh, so by then I was over 10 years. So when they asked me this question, I have to know. So luckily I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I told them, oh, this is under the Vinaya uh, and under that clause, uh, under such stipulation, sh should be okay. Under such stipulation, should not be okay. Then they further ask yet another question. Yeah, that is under the other section. Come and give teaching. Ask you a bit. Uh, don't know, I haven't read before. <laughs> yeah. So um, it is added responsibility actually. Yeah. For the uh, in in Buddhism, the the rules are about your responsibility to the community. Mm. It's not so much power. Yeah. Uh, in so much as uh, in so much as Sifu has uh, the duty to guide your but I don't have power over your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the same way the monks don't have power over the nuns in that sense. Yeah. They for many things they are a uh, uh, auto an autonomous community where they, they can and they should decide things on their own. Only on certain matters do they are they required to consult us. But consult in the sense that uh, we are supposed to have more experience. Which, if you think about it, it is just like father and, 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 and child. Uh, you can say that, but if you ask any father who is responsible, it's actually a lot of stress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the responsibility is there. Yeah. So much easier if you you know, that's why there are some there are some who choose to stay by themselves. Because if you stay by yourself, uh, the the nuns community will not come and consult one. They must they, they are independent on one community. So if you're by yourself, nobody disturbs you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, but recently there was some there was, there was a nun nuns community who asked me whether I can I can uh I can serve as their like not preceptor but acharya for next year's wasa. Yeah. Then they asked me to, to whether uh so during the rains retreat, both monks and nuns, those that observe it uh formally, they will have a series of of lessons and uh, regular teachings, yeah. So mm. recently at Pata Passes that uh, uh, his disciple uh, take over as abbot, right? So Buddha took relic. Yeah. So some nuns approached me and they asked me uh, whether I can serve as the Acharya for the Vasa. I was like, huh? <laughs> 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 I mean, frankly speaking. It is added responsibility, yeah. And furthermore, they asked. They, they said that they heard that um, I I am the disciple of this uh, my my teacher who teaches the Yoga Chara Bhumisastra. Um, it is a known text in the Chinese Mahana tradition, but not many people have even learnt it. Not to mention teach it. Yeah. So they're like, Pastor, can you take a variable? Can you? I was like, uh. Okay, okay, we, we can discuss further. <laughs> try out first, right? Try out first, try out first, try out first. No, try out first. So when they call a time, your number is no longer. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay, come, let's do dedication. Yen Xiao San Zhang Zhu Fa Nao. Now let's give our thanks to Sufu for making three prostration. First prostration. Three again. Here we got it protected by the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. So it's. Bye bye.